This is Christopher A. Paniotu of Lucia Capital Group, and this is Capitalize, the show representing a select group of intelligent investors seeking to potentially maximize every money move. We don't settle for generic advice of always and nevers. Our currency is our intellect, and we constantly seek logical ways of likely creating advantages to maximize wealth for our personal and unique situations. This show brings you renowned financial industry minds, and we strive to explore strategies and ideas to potentially help you capitalize on your financial decisions. We are capitalizers and this is our show. Welcome back to Capitalize. And today our guest is not simply special. This guy is a living legend in the planning and investment world, Mr. Bill Bendit. Have you ever heard of a rule called the 4% rule? For those of you that haven't, the 4% rule has been used in the financial world as a benchmark for how much one may take from their retirement portfolio. Yeah. Bill's the creator of that rule. Saying he's kind of a big deal is a gigantic understatement. We have a ton to dive into. So with that, let's dive in and properly welcome the godfather of the 4% rule. Bill, welcome to Capitalize. Chris, thanks. It's going to be fun to be here, and I hope I can live up to that introduction. (laughs) I know. The bar is set so freaking high right now. So no pressure. Hopefully we can have some fun with this today, but we're, we're excited to have you here. And, and, and thank you for providing the 4% rule uh, to us in the industry and, and even clients and, and listeners and friends. And, and speaking of the 4% rule, let's just, let's dive in and start talking about that. Can, can you take our listeners back to the origin of when you even thought of the 4% rule? Yeah, I was uh, a young, or not a young, but a new planner. I was in my early 40s. It was like the second, third career for me uh, in the early 90s. Uh, And I had a lot of clients who were just beginning to think of retirement. You know, they were baby boomers, retired maybe in 20, 25 years. And they're starting to ask me questions like, you know, how much should I have my retirement account so I can live a good life? And, you know, how do I set up my investments, you know, when I retire so that, you know, I can maximize what I get out of it. Uh, Cause I'm not sure, they're not sure social security, what it's gonna generate their pensions. So they were uh, wanting to really focus on their investments and see if they could get, you know, as much support for their lifestyle as they could. So uh, I scratched my head and uh, I said, I'll get back to you. <laughs> Uh, because I really hadn't been asked that question before. And I looked through all my CFP manuals and all my CFA stuff and uh, everything, and I couldn't find anything on this topic. Nobody gave any guidance on how much you could take out of your retirement accounts um, and how much you needed to save. So I said, I've got to get answers to my clients. So let's sit down. Let's go grab some information on investments over the years open up my spreadsheets to see if I can figure out answers to these questions myself. Uh, and it took me, you know, some time to set that up. There was hundreds, if not thousands of hours of work setting those up. But eventually I was able to reproduce the experience of investors who retired anywhere from 1926, let's see, to the early 90s or late 80s. And what I discovered there uh, was approximately 4% uh, was my initial finding and my very first thing was the amount they could take out each year. And then after that, increase for inflation every year. So the idea was to maintain their lifestyle through retirement, starting out at about 4%. Okay. And, and with that, um, I, I'm sure being the first to do anything, not just in our industry, but period, how much pushback did you get from that? 
Well, it was interesting. My clients loved it. Of course, I had some numbers. Uh, I could show them charts. Uh, but there were two different reactions with the industry. There was a group of folks who really hated it <laughs> because <laughs> these are fellow advisors who've been telling their clients for years either they could take out 7%, you know, because you've got a balanced portfolio return 7% a year, or you can only take out 2%. You're retired. you got to go to bonds. You can't go near stocks. You can't touch stocks. Well, my research indicated you have to have stocks, a significant exposure to stocks to get the oomph in your portfolio so you could take out 4%. Um, you have to have at least half your portfolio on it. Uh, but it was another group of advisors who found uh, these ideas very exciting. They finally had some substantial uh, information they could provide to their clients. So they loved it and they asked me for more. So after that, I just kept researching and I'm doing it 27 years later. I'm still finding out new things in this area. Absolutely. And we still love you just as much, if not <laughs> even more today. And and with the 4% rule over the years, because when you first wrote this uh, article back in the, the 90s, I believe it was 93? Is when it came 94 out? was published, yeah. 94, yeah. I I did not have a chance to read it at the tender age of three. It was a, a couple of years oh, I'm later. Disappointed to hear that. Yeah, oh, that's, <laughs> that's the worst. That is the worst. Bill Bengen's not mad. He's just disappointed. I'm leaving. Um, yeah. So, but but with that, you know, it, the, the world was much more simple, right? We didn't have all of these tools and bells and whistles in in uh, retirement planning and financial planning. And so over the years. The 4% rule has evolved a little bit. It's become a little bit more flexible because planning is not a set it and forget it. And so there are mixed views out there that a retiree, to your point, may be able to take more or less from their portfolio. But since you're the godfather of the 4% rule, let's hear it from the legend himself. Could we use higher withdrawal rates today? Um, yes, I believe you could. Uh... When I did that research in the early 90s, I was only using a limited number of investments to study it because I wanted to keep things simple. Um, later on in the early 2000s, I started adding things. I, originally, I started with basically just simple, you know, 10-year government bonds and large company U.S. stocks. That was it, the two aspects. Then in the early 2000s, I added small cap stocks, and that had a big effect. It actually took the withdrawal rate from about 4.1% to 4.5% which is, you know, 10%. That's pretty significant. Sure. Uh, and my latest research, which I haven't told anybody about. So this is a first. You're going <laughs> to, this. I'm, I haven't even published this. I've added more asset classes, uh, including mid-cap stocks and international stocks. And it looks like we're going to be pushing 495% as the worst case scenario in history. Uh, and that's, Important to understand that that is a worst case scenario. That applied to the investor retired in late 1968, who got hit by two big pair markets right after he retired. And after that, huge inflation, which forced him to take out more and more money. So it was the worst possible circumstances. Uh, and yet he was still able to take out, you know, over four and a half percent, which is pretty amazing. Because uh, some people today uh, feel that's way too high, but my research indicates not us. No, not at this point. Wow, five percent. Now, I, there's going to be absolutely no controversy with that number, right? <laughs> I mean, oh, I, that, <laughs> I that's up that. there. So, and that's interesting. I, 
kind of diving off of that a little bit and jumping into the conversation of how much risk one could take because those dogu those do those um do go hand in hand excuse me so we've had the longest bull market run followed by the shortest recession of of all time um i could dedicate an entire episode or series to this question alone but regarding risk do people really understand what risks they're actually taking today Ah, uh, if you look at some of the the investment strategies folks use, I really wonder whether they do. I mean, some of the the crowd that's been shorting or, or you know bidding on some of those stocks that have been heavily shorted by funds and, and investing in um, bonds and stocks of low quality, just hoping and, and praying that they're going to go up forever. Uh, that that strategy, as far as I know, has never worked. Sooner or later, you know, they get disappointed. But for the time being, you know, they look like heroes. They're making money. The market's rolling. And uh, I don't know when this will end. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was going to be my follow-up question. Call it here. When is it going to end? But I'm sure if you could call that, right, we would all be uh, a little bit, little bit more wealthy. Don't you find it dangerous when people are – doing these things and they're being quote unquote rewarded. They're able to get away with it. They haven't hit the wall yet. I mean, how dangerous is that? Well, I think you saw some of that back in the late nineties during the tech stock boom. I I had friends who got caught up in that and they were telling me about how they had this friend who was starting up a company and they wanted just to put 20 or 40 or $50,000 of their retirement savings into it. And they said, this is a great guy. This is going to the moon. And they did for a while, uh, but after, eventually it crashed and came back to earth, and it was very sad. I have friends who lost a lot of money in that. Uh, but, you know, a lot just seems kind of forgotten today. 20 years later, that never happened. You know, this time is different. Yeah. Maybe it is. I don't know. Yeah. Well, you could even say, I mean, forget 20 years. I mean, it's been about a year. I mean, as we're recording this in, in 2021, in, in March of 2021, it's a year after the COVID correction and people have just totally forgotten what happened in March and April because it bounced right back. It's crazy. I, I, yep. I will say piggybacking off of that. So, you know, in 2020, just to repeat, the fastest recession in recession recovery of all time. I mean, it was, I don't even think it was two months when you, when you do the math on it and people that are about to retire or they've recently retired, they have this notion that, like we said, you can get away with anything and almost anything. People need to understand the question. What if this correction is not two months? What if this recession is up to two years and how that could potentially obliterate their retirement? So Bill, my question is, can you talk to us about market recovery time and how that's really going to affect people's retirement? Yeah, Chris, you really make an excellent point. Uh, we have two recent examples. We had the 2000 uh, recession and bear market, which lasted about uh, 30 months. That was over two years. And then you had the one in 2007, 2008, 2009, which lasted 18 months. And they were deep. You know, they were 50% or more, very, very painful. 
in 2000, you had a few places you could have hid. 2008, there was no place to hide. I suspect because everything appears to be so overvalued today that when we get the next bear market, it's going to be nasty and there will be hardly any place to hide uh, once again. Uh, and it'll be, if it's combined with higher inflation, which I, I greatly fear, it'll be devastating for retirees, you know, unless they make adjustments, you know, to their, their spending. Sure. Well, and you mentioned too, I mean, the, the two most recent, let me, well, there's been three, but the two most yeah. recent recessions that we've had that actually were pseudo long lasting or extremely long lasting was the dot com bubble yeah. and then 2008. So going into that, um, we have a ton of questions, but this is, this is worth diving into a little bit. Uh-huh. In 2000 through 2002, you had these levers that you could pull. Interest rates were dropping still at that point. They've been dropping for goodness, we all, <laughs> however long, right? The last 30 <laughs> years. Yeah. Um, so you could, you could get away with that or you could maybe have some international exposure or you know if you could afford to do so maybe you could dive into real estate and also pensions were still pseudo popular in the 2000 to 2002 range you get into 2008 like you said there was really nowhere to hide we spoke about this in an interview i i did a, a couple episodes ago but now you fast forward to today market is at an all-time high um who knows what's going to happen in the real estate world when people are suddenly going to have to pay their rent and mortgage again? Who knows if inflation actually gets kicked in? Um, we actually know that story, but it's not a good one. Yeah, Interest rates are maybe ticking up and they can't really get that much lower. So there's, there's, there's not a lot of room to run, but on the flip side of that, there is positivity where Planning is so much more complex and so much more available than it ever has been. And there's all these tools where in 2000 and 2008, you didn't have a lot of these tools. So it's just, it's kind of a fascinating thing to look at. And for those of you listening at home, you got to be really cognizant and aware of that. And if you and your planner have not thought of that, by goodness gracious, now is a good time to wake up. I mean, we're, we're kind of talking about the power of balance here. So, you know, as the saying goes, and Bill, I'm sure you've heard this, when the tide goes out, you realize who's swimming naked. That is not a quote by myself. Uh-huh. That is a quote by Warren Buffett. Um, and as the markets raged upwards, people are getting really aggressive with their investing. And as the market takes a dive, people suddenly get petrified. So, Bill, could you take us through the power of balance and how valuable that truly is? I, in terms of one's investments, you're referring to balance? One's investments and even one's plan, because that's more important than just a couple investments. Sure. Uh, well, I know from an investment point of view, it's important to have uh, you know, diversification, which is balance in your portfolio, uh, particularly in this uh, circumstance where we really doesn't know, are we going to have inflation? Are we going to have deflation? Are we going to have a continuing bull market? Are we going to get into a bear market? Um, you know, any of a number of circumstances prevail. So I think you try to prepare yourself for anything, both in your investing life and your personal life as well. Uh, This is probably not a good time to be going out on a limb, taking high risks in your personal situation. It might be a good time if you own a condo or a house, uh, 
and are thinking of upgrading in the future, maybe sell that, lock in your profits, yeah. you know, and uh, rent and buy uh, later. I think that's one of possible wonderful opportunity here. But uh, yeah, balance is crucial in life in all aspects. So I'll support that idea. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and, and yes, very, very valuable. You, you mentioned selling a, a piece of real estate, locking in those gains, just as an example, yeah. and, you know, possibly renting for the, the pseudo future and then, you know, buying. And sure. it's in particular in the real estate side of things, this was not one of my questions, but you piqued my interest. Um, what do you see as far as these massive risks that could be coming down the pike? I mean, how big of a, a deal do you think that is in, as far as the overall picture, economically speaking? We're talking just about the real estate situation? Yeah. yeah. You probably know a lot more about that than I do, Chris. It's, uh, it appears to be a bubble to me, <laughs> another bubble following the bubble, you know, 15 years ago. Uh, and that uh, values have been inflated. It, I, I speak to a lot of real estate people. There's just no inventory available. Even though prices, you know, are strong, uh, people are waiting, I guess, for higher prices, which is the kind of reaction you get in this kind of a situation. Uh, we saw what happened when the last real estate bubble popped and what it did to the economy, the markets. It could be similar this time. I, I don't know. You know, uh, the central banks are very, very sensitive to all this. And every now, you know, they're, hyper-reacting, uh, it seems to me, uh, when the markets seem to falter. But, you know, can you keep that up forever? I, I wonder. You know, markets uh, at some point may not uh, uh, look at that favorably and do what markets do, <laughs> you know. Right, right. Yeah, well, and that's a term that, and in particular, people around my age being, being a millennial, they haven't really witnessed the reversion to the mean, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, if you started investing in what, 2009, 10, 11, when, when millennials started diving into the workforce, maybe a little bit earlier, uh -huh. uh, you're the second coming because you could have invested in anything and everything and you're rocking and rolling. And, and speaking of younger uh, people, um, planning can be really overwhelming for anyone, but in particular, uh, younger or middle-aged families. And so since you have this lifetime amount of experience, Bill, what tips could you give these people to capitalize on their financial future? Well, first, I think most of them should find a really good, knowledgeable financial advisor who understands, who keeps up with little changes in the tax laws, what's happening in the investing world, uh, what's happening with uh, insurance and all those other aspects, uh, because you really need a guide to this jungle. It's very, very difficult for a person who's working, raising children, uh, maybe involved in their community to try to keep up on all this. So my first recommendation is find somebody that you can trust who can be your guide to this jungle and, and develop a plan with them for your future, develop a plan for retirement, college education, housing. Uh, I think that's important that you have a long-term plan and, and stick to it, you know, have the determination to stick to it. Would you say that it's more difficult planning today than it was when you were planning in the 90s? Oh, yeah, I would say so. Things have gotten more complex. 
nothing that I'm aware of in financial planning has gotten any simpler. <laughs> Estate planning has got more complex, insurance planning, investing is pull your hair out time. Um, every aspect of financial planning. And I don't, I don't see it getting any easier because I keep tinkering to the rules of the game. Uh, they're constantly changing. Um, hard to follow, hard to interpret, hard to apply, you know, in your life. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I really don't envy you, Chris. You've got a tough job. <laughs> wow, thank you. Yeah, yeah, I feel very confident for the rest of my career with those words. I, I did want to ask you, Bill, though, specifically, what would you say is the most difficult? What, what makes it more difficult today when it comes to planning than it did back in the 90s? You, you mentioned a couple things as far as, um, you know, investing, you want to pull your hair out, which... Don't tell me that because, you know, I got a full head of hair and if, if I went bald, uh, uh-huh. that would not look good with the egg head um, in, in estate planning and insurance. But um, specifically today, like with everything going on, what makes it more difficult than back in the day in the 90s? Well, I know, at least in the investing world, it's uh, it's just such a difficult environment because there's so many players affecting what's going on uh, and actively trying to interfere with markets. Markets today are, you can barely call them markets. I mean, they're designed to have what's called price discovery where every stock finds its natural level at some point, you know, of price. But is that true? You know, when, when central banks are, are spending trillions of dollars trying to support the markets, you know, that's why everything is just floating higher and higher. So I think it's just a sheer degree of complexity and the interference, you know, from um, non-market participants that is, is in, in the investing aspect at Lake is, is creating issues and making it much more difficult to deal with things. You mentioned directly, indirectly, as far as the, the printing of money, spending, uh, I'm going to drop the S word on you, stimulus. So yeah. over the course of 2020 and the start of 2021, the term stimulus has been quite a staple in finance. And it's also quickly becoming a word that I could do without, uh, you know, stimulus, it, it happened for both good and bad reasons. My question to you, Bill, is, is when shall the piper be paid? And talk to us about this. That's a terrific question, and I wish I had a, a solid answer for it. You talked about mean reversion before. I think one of the great problems you have is people have not been exposed to mean reversion in a long time. They have not seen prices return to where they should be uh, for the long term. So their expectations are very high. Uh, their reliance on continuation of you know, stimulus of government support to support markets and prices is unreasonably high. And I feel that's just going to result in terrific disappointment at one time. Uh, I'm going to say to see it happen, you know? Yeah. Well, I, man, there's so many different ways I could go with that. One, one thought that I've had, it was interesting. I was having a conversation with one of my buddies who is uh, an economic wizard and um, we were having this, this chat on this very, very topic. And regarding just printing money, you can't just keep printing it, right? Because then those costs and that the I word, inflation, right? That starts to kick in. And your dollar is not worth as much. 
So relatively speaking, you can't buy as much. Well, if you can't buy as much, uh, it's pretty hard to stimulate anything or an economy when you're not doing anything. And if you're not doing anything and there is no stimulus, it doesn't matter how much money you throw at the problem, um, not just in government, just in life. There's certain things you can't solve by just throwing money at. So Uh, eventually there's, there's all of these levers and whether someone has the golden ticket or not, I don't think anyone does. The truth is really, really hard to find. And I have yet to find someone that has just said, I got it. I totally, totally got it. You know, you have people that think, man, we're just going to be able to keep printing and government will still keep bailing. Well, if the government can't bail themselves out, that gets really dangerous. And then you got people that are saying, well, I know you can't do that, but then I don't know what the answer is. So as far as the piper getting paid, that was not the answer I was looking for, but it's the most honest answer and I totally get it. And I agree with you on that. Bill, I, I wanted to, to ask you, kind of closing out our, our lovely little discussion, which, you know, down the road, we would love to have you back for a second date. But being the godfather of the 4% rule that you are, I can only imagine what your own portfolio looks like. So without getting into the weeds, of course, right? But what does the godfather of the 4% rule look like today when it comes to the portfolio? And then what changes would you do for your own situation in the near future if you needed to? Yeah. Um, I follow a guiding principle in retirement is that your nest egg, whatever it is, must be protected at all costs. You cannot allow it to be subject to a 30, 40, 50% decline because when that happens, you lose your power to generate income, you use your power to generate withdrawals. So you need to protect it. So in this environment, with prices and valuations being so high, I would normally have a 50-50 portfolio, 55 stocks, 45% fixed income. Everything overvalued, I'm light on stocks, I'm light on bonds. I have a lot of cash or cash equivalents. Uh, A couple of years ago when interest rates on CDs went to about 3%, I bought a lot of CDs then because I was afraid and was warned that interest rates would be going down to zero and that happened. So that's helpful. You know, stocks I've got maybe 20% instead of 50 or 55%. And being very careful which, you know, areas I'm not, trying to invest in these areas that have exploded in value, you know, that have got to unreasonable valuations. Uh, I'm trying to buy in better value areas. So I'm being very cautious and conservative and uh, it could go on for quite some time, you know, but I don't mind because I know I'm, even though I may not have huge gains, uh, I'm not going to have huge losses. And in this environment, that's more important to me. Right. And, and even though we are in different aspects of our lives, I'm, I'm just a couple years younger than you, okay? From a planning standpoint, I think I already know the answer, but for our listeners at home, they may not. Um, even though you are more experienced on planet Earth than I am, when it comes to planning, don't you think it's still valuable to start with that quote unquote nest egg or that conservative value or that emergency fund, whatever term you want to call it. And then you fill the plan from more conservative to more aggressive. 
Oh, you mean as far as having an emergency fund, which most people don't have today, I understand. Yes. Most yes. Americans, if, if they're hit with a two or $3,000 bill, uh, might not even be able to dig up the cash to pay. That's scary. I, that it should be the bedrock of your financial plan to have emergency cash. Because there's always, life is risk. <laughs> That's the nature of it. And you have to be prepared to deal with that risk when it comes your way. So I, I agree that should be a, a great starting point. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Bill, thank you so much for taking the time to come on to Capitalize, a podcast for intelligent investors, as it has been an incredible, special treat for our listeners at home. Uh, you've provided so much to listeners, clients, planners alike. And I personally want to say how thankful and blessed I am to have met you and for everything that you've done for our industry. Um, if it was not for the 4% rule that was initially released in 1994 at the tender age of three, I would not be where I am at today. So thank you for everything that you have done for us. And we hope you come back very, very soon. Thank you, Chris. It'll be my pleasure to return. All right, buddy. God bless. You bet. Bye-bye now. If you have any questions about today's episode, questions you'd like answered for a future podcast or on your personal financial situation, send me an email at chrisp at luciacap.com or give me a call at 253-214-7844. To stay up to date with my latest podcast, follow Capitalize, a podcast for intelligent investors on Spotify. I'm Christopher A. Poniotu, The Cap and Capitalize, and don't forget to continue to capitalize on your finances. Until next time, may you enjoy wealth, health, and happiness. The information provided should not be considered specific tax, legal, or investment advice, and is not specific to any individual's personal circumstances. To the extent that this material concerns tax matters, it is not intended or written to be used and cannot be used by a taxpayer for the purpose of avoiding penalties that may be imposed by law. Each taxpayer should seek independent advice from a tax professional based on his or her individual circumstances. Different types of investments and or investment strategies involve varying levels of risk, and there can be no assurance that any specific investment or investment strategy, including the investments purchased and or investment strategies devised by LCG, will either be suitable or profitable for a client's or prospective client's portfolio. Thus, investments may result in a loss of principal. Accordingly, no client or prospective client should assume that the presentation or any component thereof serves as the receipt of or a substitute for personalized advice from LCG or from any other investment professional. You should always seek counsel of the appropriate advisor prior to making any investment decision. All investments are subject to risk, including the loss of principal. This material was gathered from sources believed to be reliable. However, its accuracy cannot be guaranteed. These materials are provided for general information and educational purposes based upon publicly available information from sources believed to be reliable. We cannot assure the accuracy or completeness of these materials. The information in these materials may change at any time and without notice. The information contained herein does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy securities. Investment products described herein may not be offered for sale in any state or jurisdiction in which such an offer, solicitation, or sale would be unlawful or prohibited by the specific offering documentation. The information provided is based on current laws, which are subject to change at any time. Lucia Capital Group is not affiliated with or endorsed by the Social Security Administration or any government agency. Social Security rules can be complex. For more information about Social Security benefits, visit the SSA website at ssa.gov or call 800-772-1213 to speak with an SSA representative. It is important to keep in mind that investments in fixed income products are subject to liquidity or market risk, interest rate risk, bonds ordinarily decline in price when interest rates rise and rise in price when interest rates fall, financial or credit risk, inflation or purchasing power risk, and special tax liabilities. Interest may be subject to the alternative minimum 
tax. Treasury securities are backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government, but are subject to inflation risk. Examples cited are hypothetical, are for illustrative purposes only, are not guaranteed, and subject to potential federal and state law amendments. There is no guarantee that you will achieve the results discussed or illustrated. A mutual fund is a type of investment vehicle consisting of a portfolio of stocks, bonds, or other securities. Mutual funds are divided into several kinds of categories, representing the kinds of securities they invest in, their investment objectives, and the type of returns they seek. Mutual funds charge annual fees, called expense ratios, and in some cases, commissions, which can affect their overall returns. Investing in a share of a mutual fund is different from investing in shares of stock. Before investing, carefully consider a mutual fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. To obtain a prospectus or summary prospectus, which contains this and other information, call your financial advisor. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Diversification strategies do not ensure a profit and cannot protect against losses in a declining market. CDs are FDIC insured up to $250,000 per depositor per insured bank for each account ownership category. Christopher Paniotu is a registered representative with and securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and member FINRA SIPC. The investment professionals are affiliated with LPL Financial and are conducting business using the name Lucia Capital Group, a separate entity from LPL Financial. Bill Bengen is not affiliated with Lucia Capital Group nor LPL Financial.